When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's Ty Power's Big Footy final sale. To kick things off, you can get the power to buy three and get one free on selected Toyo passenger car and SUV tyres. Ty Power's Big Footy final sale can't last. Visit typower.com.au now. On 882 6BR, inspiring stories for Barra and O'Day. Generations of excellence since 1888. Hello once again, my name is Tim McMillan, welcome to another episode of Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Bower and O'Day, doing ordinary things extraordinarily well. Uh, in this episode we speak to someone who very much fits the bill of Inspiring Story. Uh, he has a number of accolades uh, to his name, uh, a Young Australian of the Year, a Professions Award recipient for the 2017 West Australian of the Year among them. So uh, it's with a great deal of pleasure that I say welcome Dr James Fitzpatrick. Hi there, Tim. Thanks so much for the opportunity to chat. Look, there's there's stacks to get through, uh, but look, principally, I suppose people uh, who are familiar with your work will will know uh, of the, the great amount of time and effort you've spent uh, trying to improve uh, health standards in remote Indigenous communities. Uh, we'll get into that uh, in a little bit, but uh, I'm curious to know about uh, you as a young man. What mm-hmm. what drew you towards the medical profession initially? It's an interesting question because there was nobody in medicine in my family at all. I've got parents who are wonderfully sort of socially oriented and great um, great community participants. Mum's a uh, history and English teacher and was a teacher librarian and my dad was a navigator in the Air Force for most of his career and then became a maintenance man at a kids charity. Did that uh, mean you moved around a lot as a a kid? We did. So I was born in the US and um, moved to Australia when I was about three. And we lived mainly in New South Wales, but the family did move around. Yeah. Yeah. And then the inspiration for medicine really came quite late in my life. I originally went out to a country boarding school in rural New South Wales uh, in Bathurst. And my trajectory was towards agriculture and I wanted to be a stock and station agent. Wow. Um, but then I ran out of money at university because I mainly <laughs> played rugby and, um, and, and Enjoyed did extracurricular activities, exactly. <laughs> and my parents quite rightly read me the Riot Act and said, look, you've got to make your own way. So I quit ag college and um, joined the army to pay my way through uni. And when I was in the army, I suffered a heat stroke up in Brisbane because I'd, right. I was on a, a long distance run on a humid day after a night where I probably didn't hit the sack as early as I should have. You weren't properly hydrated, shall we say? I was not properly hydrated. (laughs) I woke up in a military hospital with drips in and medical-type people fussing around me, and I woke up in that hospital, and that's the first time I thought, ah, I'd like to do something like this. And uh, When you're on the the patient end. Exactly, Mm. exactly. And I'd never thought about it before, and it was certainly a long road from that bed into medicine. It took me about four years. But I, I set my sights on it and finally achieved yeah. it. So did you have to do uh, study in another field then to 
earn your way into medicine because that's correct. One yeah. of those courses that you know that people know is uh, is has a fairly high uh, entry bar, doesn't that's it? Straight out of school, at least. Yeah. That's exactly right. And I didn't have the school grades to get into medicine yeah. by any means, having gone to a, a country boarding school, um, and I changed into a science degree studying. Yeah psychology and physiology Yep. and uh, applied for three years in a row to get into medical school all around Australia and finally got in to UWA and uh, have never looked back since. Well, fantastic that they uh, they welcomed you uh, over here then because you've done such uh, amazing things uh, in the WA community uh, ever since. So tell me, when you went into medical school here at UWA, was it always your goal then uh, to do the sort of work that you've gone on to do? Look, it wasn't initially, and it's it's interesting to reflect on because uh, I was just focused on getting into medicine for, for a few years that I didn't really look beyond my own life and my own needs. And um, my only real uh, interaction with Aboriginal communities up until then had been a fairly negative one in the um, rural communities. I'd gone to boarding school and then university in New South Wales in Armidale. So I didn't have a great awareness of remote communities or their needs. And it was when I was on a, a two-week placement on a scholarship called a John Flynn scholarship in a place called Carnarvon where, where yep. I was really confronted with some of the hardships that young people and then adults in these communities face. And it was really through that direct experience that I then decided, well, you know, I'm on track now. I've, I've kind of... Um, achieved my goals as much as I can at the moment. Mm. So then that's when I turned my attention to getting involved in helping others to achieve their dreams. Um, So You you stayed, though, in Perth uh, to qualify yourself as a paediatrician, though, uh, as well. I mean, that's a long stretch of study, isn't it? It's a fairly long stretch, (laughs) and I've never been one to rush uh, in a straight line towards the end. So my medical career included taking a year off after my fourth year, um, that was when I was the young Australian of the year, and I took a year off to do mm. service in remote communities for the year. So y- yep. you must have been doing a lot of things then whilst studying medicine to, to, oh, be, yeah. to be awarded the Australian of the year uh, before you've even embarked on your extra course in paediatrics. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, I mean, please don't be humble. Tell us, <laughs> tell us what you did to earn that title. <laughs> it's a good point, and I, I was able to do things outside of just studying yeah. as a medical student because I had a science degree under my belt, so I probably had a bit more time than some other yeah. students, and I t- tended to spend time doing other things, and those other things for me were working with a group called the National Rural Health Students Network, and that was a group of medical, nursing, and allied health students who were interested in working in yeah. the bush. So I became the national chair of that group and helped to focus the 5,000 or so students nationally yeah. on on empowering communities. And I also got involved in a beautiful community called Carnarvon, which is where I'd mm. originally been exposed to the, the youth suicides that sent me down this, this um, path in the first place. And through Spinifex, the Rural Health Club, we got involved in a, um, in a children's festival to help yep. kids become the best they can be. Yeah. Was there a single moment that uh, that sort of just washed over you where you just thought, uh, you know, I, I've got such a, a pull towards helping these people? Was it a light bulb moment or was it just a general feeling that evolved over time? You know, it was a, a lightning um, bolt yeah. moment really. It was in Carnarvon or out of Carnarvon in a little place called Mungala Village. Yeah. And I was a second-year medical student and I was up there looking into youth suicide yep. and there'd been around five youth suicides and one suicide murder in that village over a 12-ish month period. 
And I was interviewing an elder in the front yard of a dilapidated house with smashed and broken windows and a dusty front yard and talking to him about why young people there commit a suicide and, and what we can do to help. And as I was interviewing him, there were two young kids playing in the front yard, a little boy and a little girl. And the girl had the hose over the sibling's um, head and it was a beautiful sunny day and the little kid had these tightly curled peppercorns of hair and the sun was shining off his skin. It was a beautiful scene. And while I was watching that, I heard the smashing of a bottle being broken on a wall inside the house and a stream of expletives coming out through the broken window of the house. This was about midday on a Tuesday and there was someone drunk inside abusing another person And that's where it really struck me that these kids really start on the back foot and that I felt I had some time and skills to do something about it. Uh, You became a a specialist, if you like, in um, in fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I'm sure it's a you know it's a term that a lot of people have have heard before. But uh, can you just go into a little bit of detail? You know what is it and and how does it set kids uh, on the back foot? Yeah, it's a good question and. So I've identified fetal alcohol spectrum disorder as an area for me to spend my career working on Mm. because it's a way upstream cause of some of the downstream maladies that not just Aboriginal people, but people from socially disadvantaged communities in general suffer. So it's it's brain brain damage caused by exposure to alcohol during pregnancy. And it happens in all sectors of society, but particularly in communities that drink at high risk levels generally. So that's generally poor communities and more affluent communities where there's a loose relationship with alcohol. So it causes a range of development. It's funny you don't, you don't hear about it as much, do you, in the affluent end? We certainly don't talk about it as no. much, but it's there. It, mm. Certainly alcohol exposure in pregnancy takes the edge off the potential of kids, you know, no matter what their postcode. Mm. Um, so it, it causes a range of developmental and learning problems that then flow on into later life through mental health problems, drug and alcohol abuse, um, trouble with the law and disrupted education. So so not curable as such, but uh, something that uh, if you, I suppose, tackle early, you can get better outcomes. That's spot on. So yeah. it is permanent brain damage yep. caused by the, what we call the teratogenic or the poisonous yep. effect of alcohol in the developing brain. Yep. But early diagnosis and early therapy and support programs can improve outcomes. Yep. Okay. Uh, we need to head to a break. Dr. James Fitzpatrick uh, is our special guest in this edition of WA's uh, Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more in a moment. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family-owned funeral directors. Welcome back to Inspiring Stories. Dr. James Fitzpatrick is our inspiring story in this edition, uh, a paediatrician who's uh, dedicated much of his working life to uh, improving the health outcomes uh, in Indigenous communities. Uh, James, can you tell us about uh, the story of Hudson? Mm, certainly. Um, Hudson's a young boy uh, whose who's family are comfortable with us talking about his story because it's so compelling. He's a, he's a young ab- Aboriginal boy of the Bunaba people in uh, the Fitzroy Valley, which is about uh, 400 kilometres east of Broome, so really way up there in the Kimberley. And the Fitzroy Valley is a beautiful place where Aboriginal folks have lived for, you know, 2,000 generations really, 
and also where there's a thriving pastoral industry and there's there's a lot of good in Fitzroy Crossing and the Fitzroy Valley where Hudson lives. But on the flip side of that, there's a lot of social disadvantage. And he's a little boy who I met back in 2008 uh, when he was about 16 months old. And his mother brought him into my paediatric clinic because she was concerned that he wasn't developing well. He had no speech. He had no social interaction skills. He couldn't yet walk at 16 months of age. And he was very small. And I spoke with her about him, but also about her life. And her story was one of social disadvantage, of um, suffering domestic violence um, and having disrupted education herself and living a fairly itinerant life and filling her sad places in with alcohol. Mm. Um, And so it transpired that we diagnosed Hudson with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder and he had the three characteristic facial features which aren't always seen in FASD. But after that diagnosis, Hudson really triggered my interest in in FASD because I realised that his story was a very, very common story in so many people in the Fitzroy Valley and beyond. Yeah. Um, can I ask you about uh, this, maybe uh, delving into into politics a little bit, but uh, uh, particularly the last uh, state government uh, really raised this as a, as a big issue, uh, plans to to close down a number of remote uh, Indigenous communities around WA, and you know, a lot of people had strong opinions on them. Uh, certainly the public had strong opinions, you know, even callers to this radio station had strong opinions on them. I dare say many of them would never, ever, ever have actually been to one of these communities and seen for themselves uh, what they're like. Yeah. Um, in amongst all of that, what what's your take on it? Uh, obviously hard to separate uh, health policy and, and what you're trying to achieve from, from politics. Um, it's a, it is such a complicated issue. But uh, how did you, I suppose, assess that time given that so many people were throwing their two cents worth in? Yeah, it was, it was certainly an interesting interesting debate and I was very, very interested in it. And I actually really respect people's opinions um, based on their own life experience because we're all Australians and we're all part of a society that wants the best for most of our countrymen, but also wants um, people to participate and for our taxpayer resources to be used in the best way possible. Mm. So I've actually got a fairly uh, balanced view on that specific issue my experience in remote communities is that often they're places where there's a hell of a lot of love and potential and community um, strength, and you always leave them feeling better than when you arrived. Yeah. So that's one message to people who haven't been out there: is that don't have a don't have a tainted um, viewpoint just because of what you see in the news stories. What actually is out there is a a strong culture that's thriving with some really beautiful families and strong kinship connections and potential. So was it a good idea to to close those down or at least to reduce the number and and amalgamate some of those? I think that a viable community is generally one where there is a hub of activity such as a school, a store and some kind of employment opportunities. And those communities, they may be quite small. They may be a couple of hundred people only but they are a place where people can live their cultural life and also participate, learn and have some degree of independence and economic autonomy. Mm. And I think that if there isn't a viable community, uh, then questions should be asked about resources that are put into various places. Mm. So I'm not all for keeping every single community open 
just because it currently has funding going into it. I'm for a measured view where communities themselves need to to look at, at their community and say, okay, what do we offer to ourselves and each other here? And um, how can we demonstrate that this is a place where children can thrive, where they can learn, and where people have the opportunity to do some kind of meaningful employment? What have you found from, from your own experience? Uh, is, it, uh, is it getting the, the support and the rapport uh, going with the leaders in the community? Is that the, is that the secret to getting better outcomes? It's really interesting because when you first become involved in an Aboriginal community, you really have a responsibility to go there as someone who's willing to learn more than they can teach and also just to be yourself, to be Mm. kind, compassionate, understanding and to appreciate the strengths that are in the place. Are you you welcomed initially when you you get there or or is there a bit of a, a bit of a process for you, a bit of effort involved in... Uh, I suppose, convincing them that you are just there to help. Yeah, each Aboriginal community is different and they've got different priorities and they'll see visitors differently. Yep. So I guess I'm fortunate because I've worked for a long time with many communities and we do have positive and trusted relationships. Sometimes that does translate to other places with them having an an open door and welcoming what we're there for, but the relationships always have to start from scratch. I'm also fortunate because of what I do. It's generally a helping profession. Yes. So it's it's hard for people to say, look, we don't really need a a service that looks after our kids here. But it does depend a lot on relationships. But what I've found with Aboriginal people and communities is they generally start from a position of trust and and, um, collaboration. And it's only when that's broken that people tend to close up. Easier to say than uh, than than waltzing in there in a police car with a <laughs> with a blue uniform on. Mm-hmm. Um, just uh, can I ask you about um, you know educating uh, women particularly about the dangers of, of drinking while uh, pregnant? Um, you've had some some great success there uh, with the help of Aboriginal leaders. There, um, uh, some stats show that uh, that the rates of drinking in pregnancy have, have gone from about sixty percent in two thousand and nine to less than twenty percent. In 2015, that's a pretty astonishing uh, turnaround in a in a relatively short space of time. We hope that it is. And mm. as a as a scientist, and I'm always reminded this by my colleagues, we have to interpret any data very cautiously and yep. also think very hard about what actually caused that change. Mm. But it's it certainly seems it's to encouraging. be it's definitely encouraging. Yep. And it happened in the Fitzroy Valley in the context of the community themselves standing up to the issue of alcohol in their community more broadly and yep. introducing alcohol restrictions. So that was probably the single biggest um, intervention that they imposed yep. in their own community. And then there was a range of health promotion, education and service delivery improvements that happened over that period. But it's some of the best data that we've mm. got to go on and it suggests that some of the common sense approaches to reducing alcohol use in pregnancy, such as alcohol policy that reduces general background rates of drinking, broad health promotion um, and community education, getting diagnostic clinics, getting midwives and GPs to ask about and screen for alcohol use in pregnancy, they're likely to work and our data suggests that they do. Where do you stand on on alcohol bans generally and and the cashless welfare card, that sort of thing? Yeah, again, those broad policies can be very impactful in a positive way. And whatever the community you're in, and I'll note that um, Newcastle, for instance, brought in a liquor accord and restricted um, trading hours, as did King's Cross for a period of time. And in those places, those interventions worked. They reduced the amount of um, 
criminal activity and hospital-related activity attributed to alcohol. In Alice Springs, they've had a number of policies that really work, and in the Fitzroy Valley, their alcohol restrictions worked. Mm. So where there's a big problem for a community that's related to alcohol, restrictions generally do work. Yeah, okay. Can I ask you about this uh, foundation that you set up? It's uh, the, the True Blue Dreaming, an Outback Youth Mentoring uh, program. That's uh, understanding the Kimberley and also the Wheat Belt as well. Uh, how did that come about? Because not like you haven't got uh, plenty on your plate already. <laughs> That's true. This was an example of John Flynn once said that once you start an idea, nobody can stop it. So yeah. I've learned that you've got to be quite careful about the ideas that you start. Um, <laughs> but this was a great idea and it still is a great idea. So True Blue Dreaming came out of my year as Young Australian of the Year. Yep. When two army mates and I travelled 50,000 k's around Outback Australia and um, visited remote communities and ran workshops to help young kids find their dream and chase it. And we called that tour the True Blue Dreaming Tour. That was back in 2001. And then it was turned into a youth mentoring program where inspirational mentors, generally uni students, are paired up with kids from rural and remote communities. And it's a really successful program. A, a pretty simple idea, really. It's a isn't very it? simple idea. Yeah. It's harnessing the good intent of, mm. of young people and giving them an exposure and experience to rural and remote where they can learn. Yep. So it's a two-way two-way flow. True Blue Dreaming needs uh, funding. We yep. are completely funded by donations, and we're currently uh, not in dire straits, but we certainly need yep. some funds to help us sustain the program in the Kimberley, Pilbara, and Wheat Belt. Well, how, how can people help you out then? So people can go to www.truebluedreaming.org.au and donate through the donations page. It's a very worthwhile cause and we run on the smell of an oily rag. So the minimum amount of money goes to admin and it's almost all yep. frontline service. Do you get any help from government or, or from the universities involved in the program? We've had some support from the federal government through the Indigenous Advancement Strategy, yep. but very little support otherwise from government, negligible yep. support compared to the, the benefits that are actually delivered. Oh, absolutely. Yep. Uh, unfortunately, it's a pretty common story, isn't it, for um, for these sorts of of courses. Uh, well, look, we need to take another break, but after that, I'm going to get you to tell us about patches. Dr. James Fitzpatrick is our special guest in this edition of WA's Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Back with more soon. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 882 6PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back. My name is Tim McMillan. My special guest in this edition is Dr. James Fitzpatrick. Just before I ask you about uh, one of your other uh, causes or organisations, uh, foundations, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, patches that is, um, I just want to know, you know, you take on such a, a heavy load, uh, the intensity of what you do. It's... Uh, um, not everyone could with, withstand that sort of emotional, constant emotional turmoil uh, in their lives. And where do you where do you seek you know, your own therapy, if you like? What, what do you find solace or or relaxation or comfort in doing? It's a really good question, and and sometimes the wheels do very nearly fall off. Yeah. Um, personally, yeah. I, I won't pretend that that's not the case. And um, I guess earlier in my um, Development. I I put a lot of time into developing myself and yep. did a lot of I did a number of leadership type programs and self development um, exploration. You know, reading and doing courses and things. And I think that gave me a really solid foundation. 
and I've also had a very um, a very strong sense of resilience, I guess, mm. and the sense that you know, compared to X, Y, and Z other person or situation, I'm doing just fine. So I, I don't have much time at all for dwelling on myself and my own. Stressors. You're not part of the, uh, the 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 doctor brigade that plays golf every week. Then I'm certainly not. Yeah, <laughs> I am not. So the, the ways I free up time are. Um, no golf. Um, I don't have a television. Um, I work fast and yep. hard. Yep. And I go sailing when I can. So mm. my real passion and outlet is just being at sea. Being yes. afloat is really where I recharge and um, yeah. and switch off. Or yeah. being in the outback. Yeah. 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 All right. Patches. Tell us about Patches. Because right. I mean, it, it sounds like a name of a, of, a, of a cute little mascot teddy bear, but it does actually stand for something. Look, it does. And so Patches is a is a is a child development and disability service yep. at heart. And I established it out of frustration. So I was working in the Fitzroy Valley in the Kimberley um, with WA Country Health Service, who are a fantastic health service that do an amazing job with child health up there. But my frustration was that we weren't getting complex diagnostic assessments done like for autism or fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or other conditions that needed a multidisciplinary team approach. Yep. So I developed Patches as a one-stop shop model that in- introduced high-quality service providers to really hard-to-reach places like the end of a dirt road or a prison or a child protection setting um, in an efficient manner. So you could get an autism assessment or a FASD assessment done as quickly as possible at a really high um, standard. Mm. And we're as much a, a, a paediatric pra- practice as we are a logistical company. So we yep. just get things done okay. when others find it hard to get them done. Well, what's the secret then? How do you get it done? It's being very organised. Yep. Um, it's focusing on what's important and not just things that are interesting but but um, but less impactful. And it's an enterprise model. That's actually what I think at its heart makes it work. Because I've worked, I've, as you've mentioned before, I've set up charities like True Blue Dreaming. Yep. I've worked in state-funded services. I've worked as a researcher within research teams but none of them can really be innovative and agile enough to get into the cracks and get mm. do what needs to be done. And none of them have drivers of efficiency and accountability set within them, whereas Patches does. So our clinicians generally are clinical subcontractors. We all only get paid if we get a job done. And that means that we work really, really hard to get the job done, and we and we do it as efficiently as we can. So is it a, a mobile facility? You you physically take those subcontractors, those experts in their in their respective fields to those communities? That's how we began. So we yep. began in the Fitzroy Valley. Initially, it was just me going and trying to run multidisciplinary yep. clinics with these existing services. Then we received funding to take a whole team, say a paediatrician, a psychologist and a speech therapist, yep. to a remote place. We would set up in a school because that's where the kids were and we would work efficiently to do assessments that were meaningful that either triggered disability service funding or school-based service funding. And we were very, very relevant to families. So mm. they understood why we were there and we gave them something that they could comprehend it that was useful. So we, we started in the Fitzroy Valley and now have grown our outreach service throughout regional WA and the Northern Territory. And we've now got clinic partnerships in multiple states and territories but we also have physical clinics. So we've got a clinic in Nedlands where we run a busy program and also a clinic in South Headland and Broome where we yep. have therapists based, based who can 
in, intervene and deliver therapy and support services. So in terms of its uh, financial model, yep. who, who pays for it? So I am adamant that it's a social enterprise. Yep. It's actually a private practice. Yep. And we live or die by the quality and the amount of our work. So it's a fee-for-service um, organisation. So we'll deliver a FASD or an autism assessment for the justice or child protection system or for okay. private clients. Yep. And they pay for that service. Right. We then also use NDIS funding to deliver evidence-based therapy services. So it's a fee-for-service model. Um, we've got one large government grant to help us build capacity in other organisations to do FASD diagnosis, but it but it runs privately. And I'm very insistent that that's needed in getting some of these services to really hard places in an efficient and meaningful way. Mm. Um, uh, often, uh, you know, forget people who uh, I suppose are like you, and I use that term loosely, um, you know, who, who are going out and trying to make a difference to, to people's health, uh, particularly in these hard-to-reach places. They constantly talk about uh, the battle for funding, the battle to survive, uh, and if, if you just mention politics or politicians, uh, you can see the rage building in their face. But uh, you seem uh, less so, uh, less of that kind of us and them uh, between you and uh, and the political side of things as well. You have to coexist, don't you? Yeah. Really? Um, but uh, yeah, where do you stand on politics generally? Have there been a, has it been a, a source of just constant frustration for you or do you actually enjoy trying to work with them? Yeah, I, I enjoy trying to understand and, and work with the government of the day. And I also, my approach to politics is I want to see in Australia where we've got really solid base baseline or... Um, universally accessible education and health services. Mm. But I also think we need a real focus on independence of individuals and self-reliability. And I'm completely opposed to welfare as a solution to social maladies. So you can probably get a sense of where I sit politically. And I think that there's a need for both or all flavours of government in Australia. And they do what they can do while they're in power then the other party comes in and does, undoes a third of it but keeps most of it the same. <laughs> Makes uh, wild promises that can never be delivered. And, yeah, and yeah, I understand away that. Away we go. And, and we as voters, we're the consumers of politics. Yep. So that's our fault that they yep. do that because yep. that's what we vote for. Yep. Uh, but I see most politicians going in there with the intent to make Australia a better place mm. and it's difficult to work in politics. I see how hard they work and how thankless it is. Mm. And, yeah, my goal as a pragmatist is just to to work constructively yep. with whoever's uh, in power at the time and to also work with the people who are waiting for their next turn. Um in terms of other sort of, uh, I suppose, big uh, stakeholders in that in that complex mix, then we've talked about what you do, uh, politics. What do you think of the role of the media uh, in all of this? Because obviously, you know, a lot of people and and people being the voters of the government of the day, uh, or those trying to seek power, um, uh, informed by the images they see on TV, the stories they hear on radio, the things they read online mm-hmm. in print, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, well. We know that they don't offer, don't always get it right, and they don't always uh, represent things fairly and accurately. Um, where do you stand on 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 the media? Have they been uh, helpful to you? Um, I mean, yes and no. And and the media is is complex, and it's made up of individual human beings. Yep. 
And again, I f- I look at us as consumers of the media as mm. having a responsibility for how the how the media operates. Mm. Um, I I very strongly believe that there's a, a positive role for the media in reframing how we think about different issues. And a nice example is mental health. Yep. Where there there are fantastic organisations like Every Mind, for instance, who've helped reporters to report responsibly and to provide a, a call to action or a where to from here through some of the, the helplines. Yep. And in the last 10 years or so, partly because of the media's responsible approach and partly because of some significant leaders in the community, we yep. look at mental health differently. Mm. And I believe that all sorts of social issues can be influenced positively like that, including drug and alcohol issues, issues of remote communities and how we see and celebrate Aboriginal Australia. Mm. So, yeah, I, I don't... I don't have a, an all positive or an all negative view yeah. of the media. And a lot of it relates to what comes out of our mouths as well as the yes. people who are interviewed. Yeah. I just think, you know, some of the, and not necessarily around, um, uh, you know, fetal alcohol uh, spectrum disorder, but, um, you know, the, uh, the the investigations into um, Indigenous incarceration in the Northern Territory, for instance, and that some of the debate that, uh, that flowed out of that in the media, mm. um, I'm guessing for someone like you wasn't terribly helpful Sometimes it can inflame, you know, people's fairly ignorant beliefs about what goes on. It it does have the potential to do that. And I was closely involved with the Northern Territory mm. Royal Commission. Patches did 16 assessments of vulnerable witnesses there. Yep. So I saw a lot of the NT and national media. And look, I, I am a believer in, free, in freedom of speech yes. in Australia. And I think yep. that all opinions have merit, but they have to be in Formed, balanced, and reasonable. Yeah, which is where I think <laughs> we might have some of them short. might have failed. Yeah. Uh, yes. Anyway, on that controversial note, we have to uh, head to a break. Dr. James Fitzpatrick uh, is our special guest uh, on Inspiring Stories, brought to you by Barrett and O'Day, right here on 8826PR. You're listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories on 8826PR for Barra and O'Day, WA's family owned funeral directors. You're listening to Inspiring Stories for Barra and O'Day, generations of excellence since 1888. Welcome back to WA's Inspiring Stories. My name is Tim McMillan. My special guest is Dr. James Fitzpatrick. James, uh, in in 2016, so uh, fairly recently, uh, you were obviously impacted by the uh, the tragic suicide of a a 10-year-old girl in Luma, so much so that you then wrote a a fairly compelling, gut-wrenching article about it. Can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah, I can as much as I'm aware of the of the case because I hadn't been to Luma for some time. Luma's mm. a remote community halfway between Derby and Broome. Yep. And it's a beautiful place. Um I've I've got cultural mentors there and I've got great friends there and I work there as a kids doctor. And it's one of the um you know the gold standard communities in my mind for functionality and and doing well. Mm. But still in that community, a young girl, age 10, as 10 you years said, old. Yeah, it, took it, her own life. It's and hard to get your head around, isn't it? It, it really is. And, and from my understanding, she's not from that community. She was in there staying with family and right. she was from another place. But her story is um, not uncommon in terms of a life of early life trauma, mm. um, living in a family that wasn't able to care for her yep. and going through multiple placements um, and really being exposed to things that children shouldn't be exposed yeah. to, 
not developing the resilience to understand and self-regulate, yep. and then unfortunately taking this um, this option without understanding what she yep. was doing. She was too young to know what what life and death means. Even. Yeah. So just completely tragic um, and also not a result of the fabric of the Luma community, yep. which is actually I've never seen such tight-knit families mm. and such supportive um, communities as I have in the example of Luma. Yeah. So it was, a, it was a complete shock and a tragedy. Ten years old. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, the Telethon Kids Institute, you've mm-hmm. done uh, a lot of work with them as well. Uh, you're still doing work with them. Is that more research-based uh, work you're doing there? That's correct, yes. Yeah. So I've worked with Telethon Kids for about five years now and it's a fantastic research institute and it has a, a very strong leadership and a strong culture of – being relevant to the communities that we work with. So our specific work in alcohol and pregnancy and fetal alcohol spectrum disorder relates a lot to partnering with communities and community organisations to help them solve the problems that are most pertinent to them. And with mm. the work that I do, it mainly relates to alcohol use yep. in pregnancy. What are, your, what are your goals going forward? Do you set yourself sort of five-year, ten-year plans? Look, I do. I I do. And it's generally something like five or 10 years. So the just reflecting on the different types of things I've done, I've worked as a clinician in the public system. I've worked as a researcher mm. and still work as a researcher. I've worked as a, and I'm working as a clinician in the private sector. I've worked in the charity, in the charity field. I think what I'm, what I'm aiming for next is um, to try and deliver on and finish up some really um, impactful research yep. programs to grow patches into a national program. Yep. Uh, and we're already well along that path. And then I guess to prepare myself for whatever life has, has next. And that, do, you, do you see yourself retiring <laughs> at oh, a reasonable oh, age? Oh, Is it something you look forward to retiring or do you think you'll, you'll always be on this path? I'd say while I've got energy and the ability to do something yeah. useful, I'll just keep on Working at it, yeah, yeah, and that that may be in in a more public role in future, yeah. um, and I'm starting to think about and look into that as yeah. well. So I've def- I've got I've always got a loose plan. I've, yep. I've got a compass that's pointing me in a certain direction. Okay, yeah. Do you, do you have to be a boss as well? Obviously, you know, you'd be a great mentor, I imagine, and a, and a really inspiring person uh, to work alongside. But how do you go being a boss? I reckon I'd be really difficult to work for. Yeah, um, because. I'm very energetic and 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 have that that broader and more distant vision yep. front and center and then I work with a lot of really amazing people who work very hard to um deliver on that vision yep. and also importantly to recalibrate it when it's not quite right. Mm. So I've I've had some dif- difficulties that's for sure in terms of trying to lead a lot of people along a path too quickly. Yep. And I've had the opportunity to reflect on some of that. <laughs> Hopefully I can change. Yes. <laughs> Who are the people that inspire you then? Uh, it's a good question. So I guess um, more close to heart, people like Fiona Stanley um, yep. are real inspiration. She was one of those people that uh, you mentioned politicians and steam comes out of her. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and rightly so. You know, and then there are, there are more quiet achievers in public health like Mike Daub. He's an incredible mentor and leader. Um, my dad, yep. you know, he's definitely as solid as they come. Um, you really yeah. turned it around after that talk they gave you, didn't you? <laughs> like back in ag school. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah Sharpen right. up your act, James. <laughs> kind of. I, I think pretty much my parents were saying, look, um, we won't support you on this journey. Yes. Not you're on your own. We don't <laughs> love you, but pretty much, um, 
you're on your own in many other ways. And that, yep. that developed a fierce yep. sense of independence in mm. me, which has sometimes been constructive, sometimes not so helpful. Uh, Gandhi, uh, the, I, I've, I've read uh, things about you in the past where you've quoted uh, Gandhi. Is, uh, is, is Gandhi and the teachings of Gandhi something that you defer to in, in times when you need to? Look, again, I think my, my personal development has um, tapped into lots of different areas over yeah. time. So I'm as um, driven by the notions of Gandhi's like applying the law of love with scientific precision. Yep. Um, but also I've got a more sharp pencil approach to, to a lot of things and think that um, in, a, in an Australia where we've got enterprises and industries we need to lean on those industries yep. and and use use a more corporate approach to yep. solving some problems. Yep. So yes, certainly you know the philosophers and and spiritual slash social leaders like Gandhi, yep. but also business leaders and yeah. and politicians and and people from all walks of life inspire me. And we've seen some of those business leaders, you know, Andrew Twiggy Forrest, the one that probably comes to mind uh, most readily, mm-hmm. uh, stepping in. That that's got to be a good thing for you. Look, it is, and I think a- the and work, others who are trying to do similar work. That's right. The, mm. the work of the forests and and their high expectations of the the organisations they fund, yep. and then the the work of the McCuskers, so Malcolm and yes. Tonya McCusker, who are great supporters of our work in in a in a less visible mm. way. So I really respect those approaches. If people want to assist you. In some way, I mean, there are so many ways that they can assist you. Uh, you mentioned, you know, you working with 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 the telethon kids, uh, with patches, uh, with True Blue Dreaming, and then you mentioned the very specific story of, of Hudson. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there, there are so many ways. I imagine that people can help you. Where do you most need it? Uh, I'd say in two areas. So one is with patches, and yeah. that's certainly through clinicians um, who want to get out um, to the end of the dirt road mm. or into the hard to reach places. Get in touch with Patches through inquiries at patches-pediatrics.com.au and we'll try and find a place for you. Secondly, raising funds for for little Hudson, the boy from Fitzroy Crossing who sadly lost his mum in April this year. She was bumped by a car and killed. If you go to the True Blue Dreaming website and search for the Hudson fundraiser, give generously there or give Mm. to True Blue Dreaming more broadly. And then, of course, Telethon Kids Institute always needs funding for excellent research. How do you prioritise all of these different uh, pursuits? I mean, you wake up in the morning, you you, you must sort of feel uh, drawn to all of them in some degree. But how do you – I mean, when when you're mapping out your day, how do you you prioritise one over the other? Uh, Sometimes it's just a matter of – uh, what's achievable. So yeah. I now focus mainly on where I'm most impactful and useful, mm. and that's through patches. Yeah. So translating some of our research findings yep. into real activity in the real world where we work. Yeah, okay. And and your own health? You're in good health? I'm doing all right. Because <laughs> <laughs> sometimes doctors who do this don't look after themselves, do they? No. I, so. Yeah, I, 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 I look after myself okay. I need yeah. to go sailing a little bit more. Yeah, okay. Solo sailing or...? Generally, yeah. yeah I'm a, I can I like, imagine you just probably yeah. need to just clear your head. Yeah. Yep, that's generally the You case. don't do anything too silly out in the water, though, I hope to. you like, get oh. out there and go, maybe I'll just keep going all the way to Madagascar. Well, my mates used to call me Dangerous Jim because I had a little um, 22-footer and I didn't have a motor, lights or radio on it, and I used to go storm sailing out yeah. to Rottnest a lot. <laughs> 
That's not very sensible, Dr. It, James. It's not. It's not. But I've, I've, um, <laughs> I, I take a more cautious approach nowadays. Hang on. Where did you get into sailing then? Because didn't you say you, you grew up in rural New South Wales, a I, long way from an ocean? Yeah, the Blue Mountains and, and Bathurst is where yeah. I spent most of my time. But my dad loved boats. Okay. So we always had little sailing boats yep. and then some larger boats that never managed to, to sail mm. uh, because they were just projects. Uh, yep. But, yeah, I've, I've always loved the sea. And living in the Blue Mountains, we had access to yeah, Sydney and those not too waters. Far. Yeah. Not too far. All right. So if someone sees you getting in the boat, about to set sail, just leave you be. You need your alone time. Well, maybe you just need to get out there, just feel the wind in your face. Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> I think a, a few shouts of encouragement and do you have enough fuel, do you yes. have a life jacket, yep. stuff have like that doesn't go astray. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so don't go out there uh, at the moment. It's a bit wild. <laughs> That's right. uh, thank you very much for coming in and sharing your truly inspiring story. We really do appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. And, I uh, really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, all the best with, uh, with, well, with your ongoing work. Thank you very much. Uh, Dr. James uh, Fitzpatrick, uh, you've been listening to another edition of Inspiring Stories here on 882 6PR. Everyone has a story to tell. This one has been brought to you by Barra and O'Day. We very much look forward to you joining us again next time as we unearth another WA Inspiring Story. Life's so full on. I've been working on this deck for ages. These steaks don't cook themselves, you know. Life's good with a Trex deck. Composite decking made from 95% recycled materials that won't rot, stain or fade. Trex, the world's number one decking brand.